welcome back to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and what I do is I talk about comics, movies, and TV shows. But every eighth episode, I set aside a little bit of time to talk about Smallville. Or at least, that's been the history. You know, that's the way that I that I've always done things and you know throughout the history of this of this podcast but guys the eight episode structure that Trennis Magnus punches reality abides by really is not long for this world you know uh, basically what's going to be going on is I'm going to be starting a hiatus in not very long from now like a month and a half or something like that or, or a month or a month and a, it's something like that and uh two months maybe and so when I come back from my hiatus whenever that might be not really sure how long it's going to last but when I come back the eight episode structure that I use for this show is going the way of the dodo and honestly there are a lot of reasons for that it seems like I've talked about that, that those reasons in various and sundry episodes of Trennis Magnus Punches Reality and Trennis Magnus jabs reality, so I guess if you're interested in knowing why that's going to happen, the explanations are out there, so go find them. But basically what it comes down to, at least as far as it relates to Smallville, is that it's not going to be every eighth episode anymore that I talk about that I talk about Smallville. It may be that I talk about Smallville every other episode or every third episode, every 12th. I mean, it could be anything, you know, basically just whenever I feel like doing it, that's when I'm going to do it. And honestly, the lifetime of Trennis Magnus Punches Reality really is contingent on the Smallville retrospective. I've, I've given you guys my promise. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is going to last long enough for me to finish the Smallville retrospective. You know, Magnus talks about Smallville. But once once I'm done with Smallville, guys, pretty much I'm gonna smother Trennis Magnus Punches Reality with a pillow and that's gonna be the end of it, you know? Um, I, I think it would be fair to say that I never promised that this show was gonna be around forever. And so, I don't know. Going through all 10 seasons of Smallville, that's not a bad lifetime this show I don't think so uh, that's what's going to be happening now normally what I would be talking about right now isn't so much like podcasting and ministrivia and all the bullshit that's going to be coming in the future normally what I'd be doing is sort of laying down a history of what uh, Smallville as a TV show has been up to kind of to tee up the episodes that I'm going to be talking about in this episode and for those of you who don't know the episodes of Smallville that I'm going to be talking about this time around are Promise and Combat. And normally, as I say, what I do is just talk in brief about the history of the show and sort of tee up the subject matter for today's show, tee it up that way. Uh, but guys, I mean, honestly, you've heard me say it a thousand fucking times now, so, I mean, if you don't know what the history of this show is at this point, I don't really know what to tell you. So, anyway. And a lot of this could be maybe tied in with the sense of I don't know apathy or something like that that I've been struggling with lately 
and maybe that's no way to uh, to podcast or at least maybe that's the exact wrong way to podcast but that is in fact the way that i'm podcasting so anyway um guys i gotta tell you you know it's been a pretty trying past couple of weeks you know uh yeah and there are some personal things that have been going on that i don't really think we need to dwell on too much um but you know it's there are times when fandom really does impress me you know there are times when you know i i look at what's happening in the fan world and i think man that really is awesome you know that's pretty infrequent these days but it's been known to happen more often though especially lately it's just i look around and i wonder do i have anything in common with any of these people you know i mean i guess my sense of order and balance in the universe isn't dependent upon you know the consensus that i have with uh you know my fan peers and all of this stuff but even by that really low standard it's just i look around and and i wonder It's not even like, do I even know you? It's like, do we even have anything in common? You know, because, I mean, there was a point there over the last week or so, or whenever that uh, Titans trailer, I can't say dropped. What? You know, it, there was a time when people used to say, when this album came out, or when this movie came out, or whatever. And it's like, no one, no one does that anymore. You know, everything is dropped, you know? Yeah, I've got a new episode of my show. It's dropping next week. Yeah, there's gonna be a, 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 new, a, a new trailer for fucking whatever, whatever movie, and it, it's dropping next week. What the fuck does that even mean, dropping? I think it's fucking retarded when people say that, you know? Anyway, it's just, like I say, it's one of the many fucking things that I don't have in common with like 99% of fandom anymore. You know, my refusal to use douchebag expressions like drop. But, you know, no, guys, guys, just rest assured, all right? A new episode of Trinus Magnus Punches Reality will never drop, okay? It's never going to fucking happen. It'll be released. It'll come out. It'll be uploaded. It's going to be fucking whatever. It will never drop, okay? Rest assured, that is never going to happen. You know, there are people out there that will tell you, never say never. I'm promising you it will never happen. Anyway. So, uh, a, a trailer, and this is the point, a trailer for that uh, Titan show came out, and there was like just like this really strange negative reaction to it, you know? And honestly, I mean, there are certain people out there, you know, I'm not going to name names, but there are certain people out there that, you know, honestly, I do kind of expect that from, you know, they're just not really hip to anything that is related to DC in media these days. And so, you know, I mean, it's it, to me, it's a little bit wrong-headed to expect them to be excited about, you know, goings on with, uh, you know, Titans or Arrow or, or just fucking whatever's coming out these days. You know, I, I think you're kind of barking up the wrong tree on that. But, you know, so I, it, it's one thing, like I say, it, it, it's one thing for people like that to be apathetic about it. But there were other people out there, rather louder voices, I might say, uh, that were on uh, my news feed in Facebook that were just, like, just negative about it. It's like, why would anybody want to watch this? You know, this looks dumb, and I'm not... And, you know, guys, I'm not trying to glad-hand any, anybody here, you know, but the way that I look at things is there are so few things in this world that you can really love, 
you know? I look around sometimes and I see uh, a world generally and a nation in particular that I have a harder and harder time relating to just as time goes by. And there's just so much going on that I disapprove of, so much that I dislike, so much that I just want fucking nothing to do with, you know? And so I don't know if anyone else necessarily feels the same way, but because I feel that way, to me it seems like a colossal prick move to take something that somebody loves, you know, something that they really do enjoy, something that for all anybody knows could be the one thing that's standing between them and, I don't know, like a firebomb or something like that, or eating some shotgun shells or something like that, the one thing they have that may be you know, keeping them on an even keel and just want to take it away from them. It's just, just think it's kind of a dick thing to do myself. And so, you know, like I say, um, just for my own part, when I saw the Titans teaser or trailer or whatever the hell that thing was, you know, I mean, nothing in it really especially grabbed me. You know, uh, I, what we saw of, you know, the different Titans uh, costumes and whatnot looked okay. But, you know, it's kind of a lot like there there's a point and I don't know when it happens all right but you know there's a point when shows that are about and sort of directed at you know kind of marketed to teenagers they just kind of lose you after a while you know like as you get older they just lose you you know and that's not good and that's not bad it's to me it's just it, it, it's kind of true you know so i'll go out on a limb and say that if titans or a show like it started up when i was in high school odds are i probably would be a lot a lot more up for the game about it you know i'd probably be in a titans jersey right about now you know but I'm not. And like I say, the reason for that isn't necessarily a deficiency with the source material. It's just that the subject matter of the episode and the target audience, or not the episode, for the, uh, the uh, trailer, I should say. Uh, so the subject matter of the trailer and then also the target audience of the show itself. It just seems to me that this is not me, you know? So, you know whatever i mean honestly i, I kind of had a hard enough time relating to teenagers when i was a teenager so asking me to relate to teenagers when i'm pushing 40 that's a tall order you know so anyway so to me it's just it's one of those things it's it's just kind of there and i don't really care about it one way or the other but to kind of bring it all back to my main point it's like there was like real opposition to this you know like wow this looks bad they shouldn't be doing this you know and um you know whatever i just i don't get it you know i i, I really don't get it and um like i said i mean honestly there's no way to say it without sounding like kind of like a self-aggrandizing jerk and i don't hopefully i don't sound that way but whether i do or whether i don't it's not my intent to sound that way it's just Again, it's just, it's another one. It's it's basically yet another example of me being on a completely different page from the rest of fandom. And you know what? There's an argument, a very lucid 
argument, in fact, that, you know, Trennis Magnus Punches Reality really is kind of a celebration of me. Just not really agreeing with a lot of what's happening in fandom. I mean, look, there are times when I think fandom gets it right. You know, there are certain uh, bits of conventional wisdom that are floating around in fandom that I think actually have a lot of validity to them, right? Like, one of the... Probably one of the most obvious things that I can think of is that something that basically everybody seems to agree upon, including me, is Superman the movie is awesome, right? That does not seem to be a controversial opinion. It seems to me that basically everybody, up to and including me, would agree with that, all right? But then I look back on the reaction I... The reactions and the feedback that I received from that episode I did about Superman 2, where I said, guys, this is kind of a shit movie, and here's why. And guys, I mean, I got a lot of really angry emails, and I got threats and all this other stuff. And, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't set out to be a contrarian, you know. Seems like that's the hat I wear more often than not, but... You know, it's just, it's one of those things where here, again, is another thing where I just disagree. In fact, you know what? I don't even disagree necessarily with, like, the consensus of the trailer itself that this is not for me. I mean, that much, you know, I think I can agree on with everybody else, but, or at least what sounds like everybody else. But this kind of, like, mean-spirited and kind of hard-hearted reaction to it of you know this should not be done you know and this this show should not exist it should not be made and no one should watch it you know and it's like guys look you can watch anything you want to watch i don't as long as it's legal i mean i don't really care but you know just at least as it goes for me for titans i i mean look nobody knows the future but if i were a betting man i'd say i'm probably not going to tune into this show on any kind of regular basis. But really, that's true of a lot of shows. And since it's apparently it's okay for everyone to just speak their minds about these things, I think Supergirl, the show Supergirl, I think that show is a fucking train wreck. I think it's a piece of shit. I think it's, I think it's horrible. I think there's almost nothing at all about that show that's worth my time to watch, to think about, uh, barely even to talk about, except to say how much I think it fucking sucks. All right, but it's just like, you know, Far be it from me to want to take this... Look, I know I've got a ton of Supergirl fans on my Facebook. And so whenever they go, like, total fan about the show and some new stuff that's coming down the pipeline. And, hey, here's this really interesting to them bit of news that's coming along. You know, it it, it doesn't... It, it doesn't cross my mind to say, guys, I think this show sucks and I don't think you should watch it. I think this show should be canceled yesterday. <laughs> you know, and... But it, it, it is true. I think the show fucking sucks. I think it's stupid. I think it's worthless. I think it's... I just think it's dumb. I mean, there's, there are so many things that are coming out of Hollywood these days that I don't like, don't relate to, God knows, don't approve of. And I'm not going to say that, you know, Supergirl is emblematic of all of it. But, you know, I mean, it checks a lot of boxes on the list of things Magnus wants fucking nothing to do with, you know? And I don't know. I mean, I just... There's just so much going on in fandom right now that just leaves me cold that... I don't know. It's, I don't, I don't get it. I just, I really don't get it. So anyway, that's that stuff. That's where I'm coming from with that. So, um, sorry to treat you guys to such a rant here. Uh, but I promise you the discussion that I'm going to have about 
Um, uh, this week's uh, Smallville episodes, like I say, Promise and Combat. Um, it's a lot happier. It's a lot less angry and ranty and all that stuff. So I guess maybe that's something to look forward to. So uh, anyway, so what I'm going to do is... Uh, I'm Actually, and you know what? I guess maybe there is something else before I take a break here. There's something else maybe that I need to talk about. And normally what I do is I play promos for other people's podcasts and whatnot uh, on my show. You know, basically podcasts that I think people need to be listening to. I'll include a promo or two of, you know, from various other uh, shows that are going on. And I don't do that anymore. I mean, I don't know if any of you guys have noticed, but I haven't had any promos going on lately. And honestly, like I say, a lot of this just kind of leads back to my... Uh, I don't know. Disgust, maybe? I don't know. Leads back to something, though. Discontent, maybe, that I'm having with um, podcasting right now that, honestly, I mean... Maybe the nicest way to say it is I think this is the best option for everybody concerned, you know? And so I guess maybe at some point in the future I might play some promos or something. I mean, I'm not saying it's never going to happen again, but I am saying it's definitely not happening right now. And it would be kind of hypocritical of me to not play other people's promos, but then expect them to play my promos. So if you're listening to this and you realize, gee, my, the odds of my promo getting played on an episode of Magnus's show are pretty freaking low right now. Well, if your method of retaliation for that is to not play my promos, dude, God bless. I completely understand. I wholeheartedly endorse that position and I think you're doing the right thing. So, uh, you know, it's nothing personal against anybody. You know, it's just... Um, I don't know how much of a life this show really has left, but um, from here on in, I'm just, I'm going to do things my way from now on, and that's how things are going to be. So anyway, um, but I think that's enough anger and ranting and all that stuff right now. So what I'm going to do is take a break, and I'm probably going to play something that's not a promo for another podcast, and then I'll be right back to discuss Promise and Combat. Talk to you in a minute. sorry. Sorry, I ain't sorry. I ain't sorry. He trying to roll me up. I ain't picking up. Headed to the club. I ain't thinking about you. Me and my ladies sip dissy cups. I don't give a fuck chucking my deuces up. Suck on my balls, pause. I had enough. I ain't thinking about you. Middle fingers up. Put them hands high. Wave it in his face. Tell him boy bye. Now you want to say you're sorry. Now you want to call me crying. Now you got to see me wilder. Now I'm the one that's lying. 
and I don't feel bad about it. It's exactly what you get. Me and my baby, we gone be all right. I see them boppers in the corner. They sneaking out the back door. He only want me when I'm not there. He better call Becky with the good hair. He better call Becky with the good hair. You could be happy and I won't know But you weren't happy the day I watched you go Okay, I'm back now and resuming my coverage of Smallville Season 6. The shippiest season ever. Beginning with Episode 16, Promise. Lana tells Clark that she loves him, and then she marries Lex. Meanwhile, Lex kills Dr. Langston, and Lionel threatens to kill Clark if Lana doesn't go through with the wedding. <sighs> I'm gonna start with the easy stuff. The teaser kicks off with Snow Patrol's You Could Be Happy, playing while various characters scurry around and get prepared for Lex and Lana's wedding. It's rare. Not completely unheard of, but rare for Smallville to completely skip dialogue and rely on visuals and music to tell the story. But it's always effective when they do. Chloe's convinced that Lana's making the biggest mistake of her entire life. Right here, right now. As to Lex and Lana, they're excited to the to see the first I forget what you call them. Sonograms, mammograms, telegrams, something. But pictures and video of a baby in the womb. Whatever you call that type of photography, that's what's got them both so excited. Except Lex and Dr. Langston exchange knowing glances. Very mysterious. Lana gets the final fittings for her wedding dress. Lex stares at his wedding band, and Clark pauses over a picture of himself and Lana at prom. And then he flings it out of the barn. Roll opening credits. Honestly, that's a pretty effective way of beginning the episode. It's been a while since I've talked about the pop music on Smallville, and... Honestly, the reason for that is because most of the time, the pop music leaves me cold. I don't love it, and I don't hate it. I mostly just don't care about it either way. But apart from being a really neat song, Snow Patrol's You Could Be Happy really does hit upon a lot of the themes that the characters are going through right now. You could be happy, and I won't know. It could be Clark saying that to Lana, or Lana to Clark, or Lex to Lana, or even Lana to Lex, considering what else happens in this episode. Back when I was talking about Vessel from the fifth season, 
What I said was, I've mentioned all this stuff in the past, but it's always nice when the characters confirm it for me. Originally, Lex was a spoiled, pampered little Luther Corp prince. But Clark saving Lex on the bridge, back in the pilot, gave Lex an entirely new purpose. And odds are it started off as genuine friendship. But the closer Lex got to Clark as a friend, the more Lex wanted to be Clark. It wasn't enough to know someone like Clark. And after a while, it wasn't enough to be friends with someone like Clark. Before too long, Lex's jealousy made him want to be Clark. But obviously, that's not possible. So, as much as possible, Lex started working to take everything that Clark has. And as Lex himself points out, the only thing he could really take from Clark was Lana. Apart from helping engineer their breakup, Lex's interest in Lana begins and ends with the fact that she's Clark's ex-girlfriend. It wouldn't be enough to have gotten into Lana's pants before Clark did. No. Clark had to get there first. Only then could Lex give it a shot. I mean, there are no words for how sick and twisted that is. But at the same time, it's also hard to argue that it's not true. Lex and Lana don't love each other. Not really. Or at least not in a healthy way. Lex helped engineer Lana and Clark's breakup and then swooped in to pick up the pieces. Lex wants Lana primarily because she's Clark's ex-girlfriend. Lex may actually feel genuine love for Lana. His problem is that it's still filtered through his obsession with Clark and his need to take everything Clark has. I can't get into it just yet, but there's another angle to Lex's love for anybody that we still need to talk about. But as to Lana, she was responsive to Lex's overtures because she'd been hurt by Clark and she knew that shacking up with Lex would royally piss Clark off. Clark was the initial catalyst for Lex and Lana's relationship, but as time wears on, that's not enough anymore. Their relationship isn't based on love, respect, admiration, affection, or anything else. It's based on Clark Kent. Lex's obsession with him and Lana's pain from him. If Lana and Lex had just taken the easy way out and had a one-night stand to get their pent-up aggression out of the way and then parted ways as friends, a lot of trouble probably could have been avoided. Although, maybe that's just me being a Monday morning quarterback. But Lex and Lana made a different decision. <sighs> it's like anything, I guess. When boy meets girl, they break up. Or worse, they get married. Anyway. To finally move on from the teaser, though, Promise as an episode is divided mostly into separate stories. You got Clark's story, 
Lex's story, and Lana's story, after which the separate storylines reunite for the conclusion. Clark's story comes first. It kicks off with a nightmare where he stabs Lex to death to save Lana, after which she drives Clark's dagger into her own heart and dies. Yes, sir, you have to wade through the symbolism in that one. Needless to say, Clark wakes up in a cold sweat. He tries to vent his aggression out by doing some farm work, but he gets a call from Chloe before he can destroy the barn in frustration. She's somehow gotten locked inside the wine closet in Luther Mansion, so she calls him for help. After the mini-rescue, Chloe confronts Clark over the wedding, and Clark makes it pretty clear it's Lana's decision. He's not going to interfere with it. Chloe's disappointed to hear that, but seriously, the fuck else is Clark supposed to do? He's already busted in and kidnapped Lana before. That happened back in Crimson, and as I recall, it didn't really end too well for anybody. And ultimately, it's not Clark's job to save people from their own decisions. Honestly, for as melodramatic as all this might be, this is a pretty sharp insight coming from Clark Kent here. In previous seasons, Clark never hesitated to crash Lana, Lois, or Chloe's dates if he thought they were seeing the wrong person. But those were the actions of a child. And he's not a kid anymore. Clark's making a pretty mature decision here. For once, he refuses to overrule someone else's free will with his own. If Lana wants to marry Lex, Clark plans to just stay out of the way. Doesn't last long, though. Clark decides to take a chance. His plan isn't to stop the wedding, per se. He just wants to tell Lana the truth about himself, and after that, she can make her own decision. But when Clark pays her a visit, he discovers that she's already made her decision. She makes a promise. <laughs> Get it? She promises to meet him in the barn later. She's not going to marry Lex. The wedding's off. There's no time to explain. You have to leave right now, Clark, because this is TV and this is how to build up drama. But she will meet him in the barn. So Clark zips off without even telling Lana his secret. Cut to commercials. Lex's story comes next. It kicks off with a nightmare where he watches a video of a baby in the womb, the name of which I still can't remember. When the baby turns to face him, gives him an evil glare, and then lunges in for the kill. Needless to say, Lex wakes up in a cold sweat. Not long after, he and Lionel have a really fascinating conversation in Luther Court Plaza. You know, Dad, ever since I've been with Lana, I wake up wondering, is today going to be the day when she sees who I really am? What if she doesn't show? I honestly don't know what my life is without her. What would you be willing to do to make sure that Lana is standing next to you at the altar this afternoon?
anything, then she will be. I promise you. That's a hell of a thing to ask Lex Luthor on his wedding day. And it's an even bigger thing to realize that it's coming from Lionel. We'll come to it in sequence, because that's how I want to handle this analysis, but something big has just been put on the table. In fact, it's probably two somethings. Dr. Langston. Is this about Lana? Is she okay? Well, uh, that's a bit ambiguous after what you've done to her. In a few minutes, I'm gonna be exchanging rings directly above where you're standing. What was so urgent, it couldn't wait. Trust me, Lex. I wouldn't want anything to come between you and your beautiful bride. For instance, the truth about her condition. For your sake, I hope I'm not understanding you. Consider it hazard pay for the dangerous, not to mention unethical position you've put me in for months. And today's the day you hold the most leverage. Wire $2 million to this account. Miss Lyon will know everything. I don't give in to blackmail. Oh, I think you will. No man sinks as low as you have if he isn't driven by desperation. Knowing what you've kept from her, I wouldn't recommend putting her love to the test. And then Dr. Langston falls over, hits his head on a crypt of all things, and dies. Now, before I get back into analysisizing, Am I the only one who thinks the visual of Lex beating a man to death in a mausoleum beneath what looks like a cathedral and then stashing the body inside a crypt is incredibly fucking gothic? Anyway. In one fell swoop, Dr. Langston follows up on the teaser where he and Lex exchanged those mysterious glances. Here, his dialogue implies some kind of terrible secret about Lana's pregnancy and how she's gonna hit the roof if and when she ever finds out what Lex did to her. Yes, something major just got established here. Keep an eye on this. Everything that comes later between Lex and Lana can be traced back to this issue. It's massive. The other angle here, though, is it's illustrative of just how desperate Lex is to make sure Lana's at the altar. It drove him to kill a man. Now, true, this isn't really cold-blooded murder that we're talking about here. Nope. I'm no lawyer, and I'm definitely not a judge, but I think Lex would be charged with manslaughter here. He'd beat the charges, of course, but it'd probably be manslaughter. Still. Nothing can be allowed to get in the way of Lex's wedding. Nothing at all. Did Lex mean to kill Dr. Langston? Honestly, it's hard to say. Something had to give. There's only one way to be sure Langston would keep his mouth shut. And that'd be to shut it for him. Permanently. By killing him.
you see. Killing him to death. Was Lex prepared to do that? Honestly, I think anybody would be capable of it in the right circumstances. If the right things are in jeopardy, and it's probably different for everybody, but if the right domino is about to get pushed over, you might be surprised what you're capable of in the heat of the moment. And that's the point. Lex is protecting something here. What it is, we don't know. We know it's probably not in Lana's best interest. It's certainly not a noble ideal, but Lex has been pushed and threatened in ways that just aren't safe to do. And my view, like I say, is that anybody could be pushed to do what Lex did. All it takes is pushing the right button at the right time. This is not cold-blooded murder. This is a crime of passion if ever there was one, but it might all be for nothing because Chloe tells Lex that Lana's late for the wedding and nobody knows where the hell she is. Cut to commercials. Lana's story comes next. It kicks off with a nightmare where she relives the tornado from Tempest from back in the first season. Whitney Fordman's truck is getting spun around in the vortex, but Clark claws his way into the truck and saves her from the tornado. Needless to say, Lana wakes up in a cold sweat. She can't let this go. Not anymore. And certainly not on her wedding day. She decides it's time to find out the truth about Clark Kent, once and for all. Here's where we realize Lana's the glue of Lex's story and also of Clark's story. Her story's the most dramatic, which is probably why Brian Peterson and Kelly Souders, the writers of this episode, saved Lana's story for last. She pops in and out of Lex and Clark's stories. In short order, we see a replay of Clark's rescue of Chloe in the wine cellar. Come to find out that Lana rigged it up so that Chloe would get uh, stuck in there, and hopefully Chloe would call Clark and he'd use his powers, if he has any, and who the hell knows anymore. He doesn't disappoint either. He super speeds into the room, tears the huge metal door off its hinges, heat visions the door back in place after Chloe's safe, and then super speeds away. And Lana watches it all. She gets it now. Lana understands for the first time ever, ex except for time travel, that is, and believe you me, we'll get to that in just a sec. She makes up her mind and decides to pen a Dear John letter for Lex and call off the wedding. From there, we merge back into Clark's story where he decides to pay a visit to the mansion. They agree to meet in the barn later. And then, Lionel barges in. Miss Lang. <laughs> Shouldn't you be leaving for the church? What's this?
This will destroy Lex. Mr. Luther, I'm sorry, but this is none of your business. Well, I'm making it my business. I can't let you call off the wedding. Things have changed. And it wouldn't be fair to Lex to pretend like they haven't. You know Clark's secret, don't you? I've been watching you since you started seeing my son, and you've been getting closer and closer to finding out the shocking truth about Clark Kent. What a surprise it must have been to realize Clark has kept up the deception for so long. Right under your nose. He was trying to protect me. <laughs> and he's not gonna let you threaten me now. You think Clark's invincible. Not so. Like every hero, he has an Achilles heel. A weakness. I know what it is. And I know that it could kill him. No. You could never hurt him. Would you bet Clark's life on that? I give you my word, Miss Lang. If you don't honor the promise that you've made to my son, or I find out you've told anyone about this conversation, I will kill Clark Kent. When I was talking about justice from earlier this season, I included this little tidbit. If terrorists like Green Arrow are recruiting people with abilities, the only way to protect freedom and democracy is to fight fire with fire. Freedom and democracy. Well, well, I hadn't realized your goals were quite so lofty. Well, there's a lot that escapes your attention in your declining years, Dad, but not mine. The security footage from the Ridge facility was destroyed. However, several guards described one of Green Arrow's men as someone that sounded remarkably like Clark Kent. Clark? Impossible. A word that always seems to pop up when talking about him, doesn't it? Lex, it was not Clark. How can you be so sure? Because I was having dinner with him last night when all this happened. Martha made pot roast with new potatoes and tiny little baby carrots. It was delicious. Clark, Clark had three helpings. Don't worry, son. You still have plenty of enemies out there plotting your downfall. Well, here we are. Like I said, Lionel's perpetually fighting his own worst instincts. Here's an occasion when his worst instincts won out. Or so it seems. Like everything with Lionel, there are nuances and complications at work. We saw Lionel take sides against Lex back in the episode Justice, but it sure as shit looks like Lionel's loyalty to Clark isn't absolute. He sounds like he means it when he says he'll kill Clark if Lana doesn't go through with the go through with the wedding. Now, there are issues at work here that go beyond the scope of this episode, so I can't say everything that's going on here, but bear in mind that Lana believes Lionel when he threatens Clark's life. Lana's been devious as hell this season, and specifically in this episode. And we're coming back to that sh shortly, believe me. But Lana learned all her tricks from Lex, and Lex learned all his tricks from Lionel. It's tough to outfox someone as devious and as sharp as Lionel. Whether he's Jarrell's vessel or not, Lionel's the gold standard of not to be fucked with.
Lana can't take the chance that there is something out there that can wipe Clark out. So she marries Lex. Lionel's been questionable all through his redemption. As I've shown, there are contradictions at play with Lionel. Of all the characters in the show, in fact, Lionel's probably got the most contradictions following his redemption at the hands of Jarrell. Now, a lot of people tend to use the word contradictory in a kind of pejorative sense. And so, because of that, it's probably best if I define my terms here. Contradiction is what you call the state of two opposing truths applying at the same time in different contexts. Lionel was willing to side against Lex back in the episode Justice, but he wasn't willing to side against Lex here in Promise. That's a contradiction. Those are two opposing truths applying at the same time, but in different contexts. Justice was a different context than Promise. Oftentimes, when people say contradiction, what they in fact mean is paradox. A paradox is the state of two opposing truths applying at the same time and in the same context. Say whatever you want about Lionel as a character. He may be contradictory at times, but he's not paradoxical. Siding with Clark in Justice, but siding with Lex here in Promise is contradictory. The question that we're supposed to ask ourselves is how could the same man who covered up for Clark and Justice possibly threaten his life in promise? Just what is Lionel's agenda in promise? Well, it was already hard to say, but Lionel's final scene with Lex muddies the water even more. Congratulations, son. Thanks, Dad. And why do I get the feeling that's not all you came to say? Good to see the euphoria of your wedding day hasn't tempered your cynicism. I guess old habits die hard. And apparently some are next to impossible to kill. Aren't they? <laughs> do you sit up at night practicing this stuff? <clears throat> How could you be so stupid? A grown man on his wedding day and you need me to come to the rescue again. You are pathetic. I don't know what you're talking about. Don't play the fool with me, Lex. There's a crypt down below that has gotten a little overcrowded. It was an accident. Of course it was. You don't have the guts to plan a successful murder. And if anyone should uh, discover that the fresh corpse downstairs happens to be that of your bride's physician, they just might stumble onto the truth about Lana's pregnancy. She's made a desperate man of you, Lex. Okay. You win. Whatever you want, it's yours. Control of Luther Corp. 33.1. You don't have to worry, Max. You'll know when it's time for me to collect. So let's get this straight. Lionel threatens Clark's life one second, 
and then threatens Lex with even worse just a few seconds later. What's up with that? Well, this is the 16th episode of a 22-episode season, so anybody care to guess that we're probably getting answers pretty soon? Still, this is a very telling scene for what it says about Lex. He's not thinking about his freedom, his control over Luthercorp, or anything else. All he has in mind right now is losing Lana. To him, that's game, set, match. Losing Lana is the same as losing. Now, I don't want to get all feminasty here, but I do think it's fair to say that Lex tends to view Lana as a possession. Lana, at least in Lex's mind, is a prize to be won. And Lex won't tolerate anything that threatens his hold on her. And that'll become very clear in upcoming episodes. But right here in Promise, we saw Lex kill a man and then hide the body to protect his relationship with Lana. And that's shocking enough. But right there, you just heard him beg. He all but got down on his knees to beg Lionel not to fuck this up, to let him have Lana. The last time that we saw Lex beg Lionel for anything, it was back in Lexmas from the fifth season where Lex needed money to pay for Lana's hospital bills. Without any other option, he dropped in on Lionel and threw himself on his mercy. And Lionel told him, fuck off. Now, Lionel's not quite that harsh here, that much is true, but he still makes it clear to Lex that there's going to be a price to pay for his sloppiness. Lex knows the time's going to come when Lionel expects payback. And let's face it, covering up for murder, or at least manslaughter, is one hell of a marker to call in. In other news, Promise is the latest and probably most egregious in Lana's new habit of double dealing and talking out of both sides of her mouth. Lionel shows her, though, what a novice she is. But she still manages to accomplish a lot with very little in a very short amount of time. Lana rigs the deck so that Clark has no choice but to unwittingly expose his secret in order to help Chloe. The irony to this is that Clark would have told his secret to Lana that day anyway. Had Clark stuck around, it's likely that Lionel would have barged in and threatened Clark's life. Lana's secrets, double-dealing, and devious nature proved to be her undoing and promise. To continue the gambling metaphor here a little bit, had Lana dealt off the top like she should have, she probably would have discovered Clark's secret that day anyway, and Lionel never would have been able to, to leverage her into marrying Lex. Among other things, one thing this does is put the shoe on the other foot. Now it's Lana. She's the one with the secret. And she has to keep it quiet because she wants to protect Clark. She has to hurt him in ways that kill her because she ultimately loves him and is protecting him. Lana understands why Clark kept his secret from her. She gets it now. And now she's also going to find out firsthand what it's like to keep a secret from someone specifically to protect them. Because, guys, this knowledge is dangerous. It could get that person killed. 
So it's better to keep things quiet, even if the other person doesn't understand why this is all happening, especially if they don't understand. Lana's become everything she used to hate about Clark, and the real hell of it is she knows it. This isn't the only parallel between Clark and Lana and Promise, though. Clark talks to Martha about love and the certainty of knowing whom you should marry in life. Martha sits Clark down and basically encourages him to pour his heart out to Lana, be honest with her for once. She's already engaged to his mortal fucking enemy, so what more is there to lose? Lana has a kind of, sort of, similar conversation with her Aunt Nell, but from a very different point of view. Nell encourages Lana to put it all behind her before she goes to the altar. Otherwise, there's every chance that she might make the wrong decision. To move on to other things, as with Memoria from The Mighty Season 3, Mark Snow is an unindicted co-conspirator in this episode. Now, as I've said before, most of the time, Mark Snow's scores on Smallville tend to be pretty forgettable. Yeah, they tend to work for the scenes that they're used in, but they usually lack the grandeur and operatic style that people tend to associate with Superman music. But every now and then, Memoria is a good example. Every now and then, Mark Snow throws us a curveball. The tense piano theme from Promise is a, is a good example of what I mean. Promise was written by Brian Peterson and Kelly Sathers. They've written some incredibly important episodes of Smallville, and they'll write incredibly important episodes again in the future. Hell, they wrote some of the most important episodes of the entire series, but and certainly of this season, but even so, Promise really is in a class of its own when it comes to subplots, intrigue, suspense, and other shit. Again, it's important to understand the definitions of words here. A story is what you tell. Plot is how you tell it. Plot is the arrangement of elements that make up a story. Promise would be a hell of a lot less effective without the trichotomy of the Clark, Lex, and Lana stories being presented independently of each other as Acts 1, 2, and 3, and in that order. It has to be Clark, Lex, and Lana. It has to be those stories presented in that order, and then the story unifies again for Acts 4 and 5. Now, don't get me wrong. This isn't the first time that Smallville's played around with chronology and, and differing points of view in order to tell a story. You've got Zero, Witness, and Reckoning. Those are all good examples, but Promise takes all the storytelling possibilities inherent to Smallville as a TV show, and it just brings everything to the next level. A good example of what I'm talking about here is Clark and Lana's scenes in the Luther Mansion. We see their conversation with each other twice, but each of those two scenes is motivated by different values each time. In Clark's story, 
It's him desperately reaching out to the woman that he loves, giving her his heart. And so the cuts come quickly and the score is, is played higher in the scene. When it's Lana's turn, we see the same thing, but it's paced slower. The score is slightly more subdued this time around. The cuts come a little bit slower. Uh, the context is different. Now, the impetus in Lana's scene is how wrong Lana's been and how wrong she's had it for all these years. And there's an almost tangible sense of her regret for her actions. And, and you also get the idea of her forgiving Clark for all the shit that he's put her through over the years. It's Lana trying to tell Clark that everything's okay, but having to rush him out the door. The same, the same basic idea is true of Clark rescuing, quote unquote, Chloe from the wine cellar. In Clark's story, it's a glimpse into his helplessness in the face of unstoppable reality. Lana's marrying Lex and there's nothing he can do to stop it. In Lana's story, we see the same thing, but it's different. It's Clark unwittingly, but still carelessly revealing his powers to someone that he sacrificed so much for to protect from the hard realities of his secret. It's shocking for Lana to see Clark use several of his powers and it's suspenseful, uh, suspenseful for the viewers. These two scenes are basically, they're the same, but they play out almost, they play out very differently from one another. Even though they're note for note the same, they play out differently as far as cuts, dialogue, and other stuff's concerned. Different things are at, are, are at stake in each of those presentations of those scenes. Different revelations are made. Different agendas are fulfilled. The same scene can bring across incredibly different emotions depending on the context in which it occurs. There's no finer example of this than promised, at least that I can think of. In any type of writing, there's the story that you tell. And then there's how you tell it. That ultimately is the difference between story and plot. Promise tells the same story, more or less, from three different points of view. The plot is what makes the story of Promise such a rich and rewarding episode to watch. Nothing's perfect, though. <sighs> During the wine cellar scene in Lana's story, Clark super speeds away, but Unlike in Clark's story, there's no, sound effect, uh, there's no sound effect for Clark whooshing out of the scene. He's simply there one second, gone the next. Now, you might be able to no-prize this by arguing that Clark's super speed effect in his own story is this show's stylization. The super speed effect in Lana's story is how it really looks to the characters. But that doesn't really change the fact that it, it at least looks like somebody slapped some unfinished dailies into this episode and pretty much called it a day. Now, I've spent a hell of a long time talking about how awesome Promise is, but guys, I'd be lying if I told you this is the way I felt when Promise first premiered. I was tempted. Very tempted to wash my hands of Smallville entirely. 
I mean, the way I looked at it, the truth about Clark is the secret Jonathan Kent fucking died to protect. And so it felt like it was shitting on Jonathan's memory to ever show Lana the truth. But there are a lot of factors at work. As I've said, Al Goff and Miles Miller intended Smallville to run for five seasons. It's likely they never thought they'd see season six. So Lana discovering Clark's secret now is probably just them improvising as best they can. But second, my view is that the ultimate takeaway from Reckoning back in the fifth season was less that Lana shouldn't know Clark's secret. Lana's death in Reckoning was the circumstance where Clark had to learn that he isn't God. It's not up to him to choose who lives and who dies. Reckoning from the fifth season isn't a case study for why Lana Lang should never discover Clark's secret. Instead, Reckoning is an episode about Clark learning to accept the limitations of his power. But when Promise debuted, I just didn't understand that at the time. Another thing is that when you come right down to it, Lana discovered most of Clark's secret on her own. He had nothing to do with it. He never tells her his secret and Promise. He wants to, he even tries to. But Lana won't let him get the words out. She already knows the high points of it. The other thing to consider is that Clark and Lana both were in different places back in Reckoning from season five. Clark acted impulsively to save his relationship with her. And for her own part, she didn't completely grasp why he'd kept his mouth shut all those years in Reckoning from the fifth season. So here in season six, Clark and Lana both have a very good idea of what life without the other truly means. So like I've said, all through this retrospective, context matters. The truth is, I didn't subject Promise to this much analysis back when it first aired. And even if I had, I still totally disagreed with where Promise took this season and this show back when it first came out. As a justification for that, sometimes, sometimes it's hard to see the forest when all you're surrounded by is trees. But now that we can take a retrospective look at the sixth season, it's plain to see that nothing, nothing in Promise was arbitrary. Everything that happens in this episode is paid off. If not this season, then soon. In fact, after we finish up season six, we'll be going straight into what I call the sainted seventh season. The sainted seventh season. And the reason it's sainted is because I love almost everything about the sainted seventh season. But here's the thing. All or most of what happens in the sainted seventh season of Smallville wouldn't have been possible without season six in general 
and Promise in particular. The characters are now almost perfectly positioned for the season finale. Now, yeah, sure. There's a couple more subplots to straighten out here and there, but basically most of the major pieces are where they need to be to set up the finale this season. And like I said, I was blind to all or most of that when Promise first aired. I appreciated this episode on a technical level. I could admire the acting, the directing, the music, the plot construction, and pretty much everything else, but this is crucial. I didn't enjoy where Promise was taking the characters. I didn't enjoy the story. And that's only because I had no idea what lay in store way ahead in the future. But all these years later, it's fair to say that season six in general, and Promise in particular, have really risen in my estimation. And a major part of that is how easy, I guess, how easy to see not just what Promise set up for the future, but how it's absolutely dependent upon everything that's come before. Promise wouldn't have worked any earlier than season six and the Sainted Season 7 couldn't exist without it. So all around, yes, I love Promise. It's taken a long while to see it for what it is, but I now recognize that Promise is an amazing episode in an amazing season of an amazing TV show, and I wouldn't change a single part of it. Well, except maybe that bit where Clark super super speed sound effect uh, is missing, but hey, nothing's perfect in life, right? Anyway. Combat! Episode 17. Clark and Chloe track down another zone. Lois is in desperate need of a news story, and Lana miscarries the baby. Big shit all around here. And one of the most obvious things that's going on here is the underground fight club featuring showdowns to the death between metahumans and aliens. Think about that for a minute. This is how far Smallville's come. The concept of exploiting metahumans would have been too high concept even for the dreaded fourth season, but now kryptonite freaks, metahumans, aliens, and other bullshit are so commonplace and mainstream that there's actual demand for MMA-style brawls to the death featuring superhumans. Yes, it's sick and twisted, but at the same time, it's the outside world reacting to the existence of metahumans. Again, this isn't the first season of the show where metahumans are Smallville's best-kept secret. They're now becoming recognized as a commonplace thing. Other stuff. The 33.1 subplot gets moved forward quite a bit here. The Justice League of America's hit Lex's uh, 33.1 facility in Corto Maltese. And honestly, I mean, after that, who the hell even knows which one's next? Lex is feeling the pinch here. 33.1 isn't going how Lex planned. And that's not all. The pregnancy isn't going the way Lana wanted either. After she passes out at Luther Mansion, Lex tells, tells her later that she miscarried the baby. She handles it more or less the way that anybody probably would. 
which is to say, not very well at all. Lex does... He, he does get a little bit of good news late in the episode, though. His crew stormed the Mutant Fight Club base of operations. Titan's dead, but they recovered his body and they did an autopsy. Gee. I wonder what that means for the future of 33.1. Anyway. Another zoner, another stunt casting. Titans played by Kane, a WWE wrestler. The sheer concept of Phantom Zone escapees is loaded with potential for different guest stars. And as I said when I was talking about Static earlier this season, since we're talking about Aldar here, may as well talk about the casting decision. The zoners, by virtue of who they are, lend themselves to stunt casting. Goff and Miller were quick to recognize that, too. Sure, Gloria wasn't portrayed by some superstar, but here in Static, Aldar is played by Batista, the wrestling dude. As with Bow Wow back in Fallout, some people are royally pissed off about this casting choice, but I don't really follow rap music, so I've got no real investment in Bow Wow, apart from the one time that he played Bear. And I don't watch wrestling, so I had no idea who Batista was outside of Aldar here in Static. To me, though, it's perfectly logical to cast wrestlers for one-off characters like this. I'll have more to say about this later on, but for right now, I think it's worth saying that wrestlers already have some understanding of acting, and all of them understand stunts, stage fighting, and all that other stuff. The bottom line here is that if you have a superhero show with lots of action and fights and stunts and shit, you could do worse than cast B-list wrestlers as your guest stars. Apart from the crossover appeal to the wrestling fan base, you get people who probably know even more about stunts and movie fighting than you do on set. It's a good match. No, Batista isn't exactly Anthony Hopkins. His performance is a little cheesy, but he brings real, physicality to the role. And let's not overlook the obvious. Tom Welling is a big bastard. Guys like 6'4 and 230-something pounds. I mean, he's a huge son of a bitch. And there just aren't very many people out there who are bigger than he is. And of all the people who are bigger than Tom Welling, most of them aren't actors. Honestly, Goff and Miller made the right choice by casting wrestlers in some of these roles. I stand by that here. Hell, if anything, combat only proves my point even more. WWE wrestlers aren't completely unfamiliar with what they were called on to do for Smallville. Like I said, there's the obvious potential for cross-promotion. New viewers are any show's lifeblood, but there's more to it than that when it comes to the zoners. Pro wrestlers are already familiar with the ins and outs of stage fighting and the kinds of theatricality that Smallville's starting to depend on more and more. They're accomplished stuntmen and they can act at least well enough to get the job done. All in all, it doesn't really bother me that WWE wrestlers and, and other kinds of stunt actors play such a big role in this season, especially since this is pretty much the last we see of them. Since we're on the subject though, Titan's a special kind of fierce. Now, yeah, 
Aldar would have been tougher than just about anybody Clark's ever faced before, but Martian Manhunter bailed Clark out. Clark doesn't have that advantage going for him here, though. And so because of that, Titan's the most powerful opponent that Clark has ever fought. He thought that he was ready for this. He thought he wanted this. Clark talked a good game, but then he came face to face with a real fight. One thing that Clark had to learn was it's all well and good to want a fight, but you'd better be ready for it when it comes your way. Titan's a killer. Clark's never really thrown with anybody near Titan's level before. Now, people, we've all met guys like Titan in real life, and they're fucking scary. I mean, I think most people are probably willing to fight. They need the right motivation, maybe, but they're willing to, if they have to. But guys like Titan live for the fight. The fight. And I'm not talking about those little chicken shit bullies either. I mean animals. There's something about beating the shit out of other people and getting the shit beaten out of them that they're just addicted to. There's no fight that's tough enough for this type of person. It's never rough enough. Guys like this are fucking scary because there's no limits for them. Clark's never encountered anything like this before, and he has to learn the hard way that he's not prepared for somebody like Titan. In fact, speaking of Clark, deeper themes and implications. Thanks, Oliver. Yeah, I'll call you if I find anything. Police are baffled over a recent string of bizarre citizens' arrests. Numerous career criminals have been mysteriously delivered to stations throughout the metro area, in most cases unconscious. Clark, do you know anything about this? Sounds like some bad guys have finally been brought to justice. Well, some of them were hurt pretty badly. That sounds like a little more than justice. They were meteor infected. Put up a fight. I know you're trying to help, but you can't go about it this way. It's, it's not right. You know what's not right, Mom? is staying up here and doing nothing when I could be out there making a difference. Now I gotta go. Oliver gave me a tip, I gotta follow up on it. Clark. I know how difficult Lex and Lana's wedding was for you. But ever since that day, it's like you've become another person. Why? Because I'm not distracted by my feelings for Lana anymore, that I can finally focus on what I need to do? Sweetheart, you should never consider what you felt to be a distraction. Love is a natural human emotion. Then maybe my mistake was having those feelings at all. I'm not human, Mom. It's time I stop pretending to be. Clark's used the gap between promise and combat to be productive. He's tracked down kryptonite freaks and hand-delivered them to police precincts all across Metropolis. But. Obviously, Clark got a little tough on him because half the people he arrested were unconscious when they were gift-wrapped for the police. This is Clark lashing out, and it works for me. He's burying himself in his work rather than hiding in the barn wallowing in self-pity. 
Lana's decision to marry Lex has hurt Clark. He's lost the girl he loves to his mortal fucking enemy. And so he's working out his aggression on people who deserve it. And that works for me on so many different levels. First, it's Clark following Oliver's advice. Oliver's busted Clark's balls a few times about hanging out on the farm rather than going on the offensive and taking proactive measures to really use his power to protect and help people and deal with problems before they become genuine threats. Here, Clark's doing the right thing, but he's motivated by all the wrong things. He's not taking these kryptonite freaks out because they've broken the law. He's taking his temper out on them because he's pissed off about goings on with Lana. True, those freaks deserve to be incarcerated, but with Superman, the ends don't justify the means. It's not enough to do the right thing. You have to do it the right way. And then you have to do it for the right reasons. Clark's better than this. It's perfectly fine to go out looking for kryptonite freaks who break the law, but he's got to do it with a clear head. And right now, Clark's head isn't anywhere near clear. He wants to believe that he's free of Lana's bullshit so he can focus on what needs to be done, but he's not. His mind's cl clouded by anger and pain over Lana's betrayal. The second level, though, is how his behavior here in combat makes a lot of choices that he makes way later on down the line easy to believe in. I'm hinting at something here. And I'll come back to it in a couple of years, but the groundwork for a lot of stuff was firmly set up here in combat. It's not wacky characterization when Clark makes certain decisions a few seasons from now. But anyway, superficially, Clark's rejecting Lana and his feelings so that he can bury himself in the work of being an anonymous hero. That's the point. And remember that because we're coming back to this in the future. In other news, Lois barges in on Clark and Chloe in the Talon apartment. She needs a story pronto or she's going to be laid off. Clark and Chloe stonewall her on their, uh, on their story about Titan, but Lois works the pieces out anyway. She covers more ground in one minute than Clark and Chloe do combined over several hours, and I love that. Lois is an army brat. She knows every army base in the Midwest. She knows where the, where, where the illegal fight club's being staged. And she recognizes a story when she sees one. She may not have all the details. Yet. But she knows there's a hell of a lot more to Titan than meets the eye. So, Lois tries to do this undercover thing and bluff her way into the fight club. Almost works, too, but then she gets captured. Not the point. The point is, Lois is smart tenacious and cunning enough to recognize a story and then beat everybody else to it. These are the qualities that'll make her a superstar at the Daily Planet, and we see him on full display here. Clark and Chloe aren't slouches either, though. They track down Maddox, the ringleader of the Mutant Fight Club, the old-fashioned way. Clark confronts Maddox outside, the Bell, outside of Bell Reeve, which is where most of the Metahuman Fight Club's guest stars have come from. Clark puts on a good show for Maddox, so he agrees to let Clark join the Fight Club. And 
This is where I should probably talk a little bit about Michael Eklund, the actor who, who plays Maddox. In his civilian life, he's a quiet, buttoned-down, forgettable nobody who works at Bell Bell Reef. But the minute he has to MC an episode of the Mutant Fight Club, he's a cheesy, over-the-top, and kind of sleazy and creepy Vegas-style showman. I have no idea how much Michael Eklund got paid for his guest appearance, but it couldn't have been enough. Clark more or less forces his way into the Mutant Fight Club, and at first, Maddox quietly resists him. He comes off all mild-mannered and, and, and just sort of passive. But when Clark shows a little bit of his power, the mask slips a little bit. And after that, Maddox comes out, he comes off like an absolute scumbag. Once Clark proves himself, and once Clark proves himself, gone is the shy, quiet, almost respectable Bell Reeve technician, and out comes Maddox, the creepy Fight Club sideshow barker. All in all, it's just really solid and effective acting. It plays like gangbusters, and I, I, I buy every single second of it when Michael Eklund is up there chewing up the scenery. Clark looks like he wants to puke just shaking the guy's hand. I mean, Maddox is just a total scumbag, and Eklund owns every last second of it. It's great. Going back to Clark, though. Chloe warns him the Titan's a killer. Now, yeah, Clark's faced off with some really tough guys in his time, but when has he ever been up against a monster? Guys, there's a good chance that Titan can kill Clark. Clark's reply to that is he's gonna just have to kill Titan first. Again, with Superman, the ends don't justify the means. I've said before that there are circumstances where I honestly don't think Superman has any other choice except to kill. Whatever happened to the Man of Tomorrow is pretty much the gold standard of circumstances where Superman is forced to take life. Now, yes, I'm not especially fond of whatever happened to the Man of Tomorrow, and I've said so on many occasions, but it's not about whether I like that story. It's about whether Superman was justified in taking life in that story. And I believe he was. Titan? Yeah, he's tough. He's a monster, even. But does he really deserve a death sentence? I just don't think so. At least not yet. But, as I said a while ago, Clark's not really himself in this episode. He's doing all the right things, but he's doing them in the wrong way, and never for the right reasons. And wanting to kill Titan is the logical end game of that. I mean, why not? If Clark's willing to, to go all vigilante on some meteor freaks, what's he going to do when he's up against someone as dangerous as Titan? Clark wearing the black leather getup in the Fight Club that's not just an affectation that Maddox's costume department dreamed up. Or maybe it is, but that's not the point. The point is that Clark was wearing 
his usual red and blue when it when he came down on Maddox. But Goff and Miller weren't about to allow Clark to wear those colors when he squared off with Titan. The red jacket and blue t-shirt are Clark's de facto Superman outfit in this show right now. Those colors mean something. And God knows those colors are going to mean even more later on. But the point is, Clark couldn't be allowed to wear Superman's colors in the ring. Yes, it's honorable to want to put the escapees back into the Phantom Zone, but that's not necessarily what Clark has in mind for Titan. He wants a fight. He's got a lot of pent-up anger and aggression that he's working through. He wants to beat the fuck out of somebody who can stand up to it. And hey, if Titan just happens to die in the process... Well, Clark's okay with that. Or so he thinks. But he soon realizes that he's bitten off more than he can chew. This is the most brutal fight that Clark's ever been involved with. Clark's only ever fought an opponent once before who was tough enough to draw blood from him, and that was Zod. And the only reason that Zod was able to do that was because Clark was running a scam on Titan fucked Clark up in a big bad way, even though Clark was giving it his best fight. Yeah, it's a cool battle. Clark uses moves that he's never dared to use before. He gives Titan a headbutt, a kick to the face, and even uses full-scale punches on him. Clark's never used most of those moves before. He's never needed to. But Titan shakes most of them off and keeps coming. Yeah, it's a cool and visceral thing to see Clark duking it out against somebody who's as tough as he is, give or take, but the entire fight is a testament to Clark's short-sightedness, his anger, and his overconfidence. He's not prepared for any of this. But Clark reaches down and finds the strength to fight back. He even wins. But here's the thing. Titan dies. Now, yeah, he literally fell on his own sword. Clark didn't kill him. Titan accidentally killed himself. When it's over, Clark realizes that Titan's been the bully against most of the opponents that he's fought. But during his fight with Titan, maybe Clark wasn't the bully exactly, but he was damn sure the aggressor. He came in wanting a pound of flesh, and he damn near didn't walk away from it. Same could be said for Lois. Now, it's cool to finally see Clark throw some super punches and stuff, don't get me wrong, but the necessity for doing it, the fight for survival that Clark found himself in, all those things and more are his fault. He struck out in anger. Clark's not directly responsible for Titan's death, but it's still hard to argue that Clark wasn't in any way the same kind of hero and champion that Superman's supposed to be. Clark's going to carry these lessons with him for a long time. Oddly enough, though, there is a parallel between Lex and Clark going on here. Lex beat the snot out of Langston back in Promise, and then Langston accidentally died. Just a while ago, I said that it was a crime of passion. Lex didn't intend for it to happen, and tried like hell to bury the evidence. And he's totally cool with what happened. Outwardly, Lex says, hey, shit happens in life. 
So the best we can do is just move on. But inside, he's happy he's gotten away with manslaughter, at the very least. Here, Titan accidentally killed himself during the fight with Clark. This too could be called a crime of passion. Clark didn't sweep it under the rug though. He fessed up to Martha about it though, and obviously wishes he could undo everything. Take it all back. But he can't. And he knows that. He's not completely happy about getting away with it, but it's hard to confess to the authorities that you fought an alien to a standstill, and then he hoisted himself on his own petard. The only thing that Clark can do is learn from this experience and just move on. Lex and Clark have at least have as much said that their friendship is over, but it's at least interesting to me that this is a good reminder that their problems with each other are more than just Lana. She might have been a major catalyst for Lex and Clark, but they've always had fundamentally different worldviews from one another. As they get older, their worldviews manifest themselves and assert themselves in the choices that these men make and the way they process and learn from their mistakes. Lex and Clark couldn't be farther apart from each other when it comes to how they've responded to this pair of accidental deaths. This isn't all that Lex is getting away with, though. After the miscarriage, Lana says that she wants her the, uh, all of her medical files from uh, Dr. Langston's office. Lex confiscates them and then burns them. Weird thing to do, considering that his wife said she wanted to check those files out to find out if there's anything that she could have done to save the baby. So, what the fuck? Well... The answers are going to have to wait. For right now, though, it's tempting to compare where Clark is right now to where he was after Reckoning back in the fifth season. Clark lost Jonathan because he tried to play God. Clark paid dearly for tampering with the natural order of things. Clark was in a lot of pain and rage and in vengeance, which is the episode right after Reckoning from season five. And he nearly took his rage out on somebody who had nothing to do with Jonathan's death. But he ultimately made the right decision. It helped that Clark could see that he was headed down the same path as the Angel of Vengeance. She served as an example of what not to do. But Clark doesn't have anybody to compare himself to here in combat. He's in a lot of pain and rage because of Lana's marriage to Lex. and. He absolutely took his pain and anger out on Titan. Again, Clark didn't kill Titan. But Clark is still the catalyst for Titan's death. The comparison between Clark's actions in the episode Vengeance and then here in this episode Combat are probably inevitable. In such a, uh, or rather in each case, Clark eventually sees the error of his ways. It's worth mentioning, however, that unlike the fifth season, Clark was only ever on Titan's trail here in combat because he fundamentally wanted to do the right thing. Clark's actions in Vengeance as an episode all come from doing the wrong things and wanting to do the wrong things. Little or nothing about Clark's motivations in Vengeance from season five are pure. At but at least combat continues the quest to shut down all the zoners. 
Clark's heart may be in turmoil, but his head is at least in the game. And that counts for something, right? What's striking about this pair of episodes, which is to say promise and combat, what's striking about this pair of episodes is how none of the characters are ever truly beyond redemption. Or at least, they're not beyond wanting redemption. By the time credits roll for combat, Lex, Lana, and Clark have all made decisions that they're going to remember, and possibly even regret for the rest of their lives. Back in the second season, it was all fun times and sunshine. Clark could always play basketball with Pete, or he could shoot pool with Lex, and he could forget about his problems for a little while. Lex could lie to himself that what he wanted and the things that he does are ultimately good for society. Lana could serve lattes and shoot Neutrogena ads, but none of them can do that stuff anymore. Childish things are far behind all of them now. It's only when credits roll for combat that the viewer finally realizes that the sixth season may be Smallville's shippiest, but it's also the end of each character's innocence. They're all growing up. They're making adult decisions now, and sometimes they're making mistakes. And those mistakes hurt. Some characters will bleed because of mistakes they've made in this season for years in some cases, and for the rest of their lives in other cases. But the point is, they're all beyond the time in life when a simple apology, a hug, and a pop song can smooth, o- smooth over their problems. They're all in new territory now. <sighs> so anyway, I think that just about does it this time around. Now, next time, I'll be talking about progeny, nemesis, and noir. But that's it for me this week. So, bye everybody. I will see you next week. So I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks podcast network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at trennismagnus at gmail.com. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about 
the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promos section. Visit our website at twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is always spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at twotruefreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, Two True Freaks gets a little cut of what you buy and it doesn't cost you anything extra. So you get to shop as usual and help out the Two True Freaks at the same time. Two True Freaks and all of its excellent affiliates are available on iTunes, and you can choose to subscribe to either the entire network if you wish, or pick whichever individual shows you want to follow. We have so many shows to choose from, there's just bound to be one that appeals to your particular fandom. Just search Two True Freaks with an exclamation mark at the end, space, and the number two. If you ever leave your house and you actually have friends, why don't you tell them about Two True Freaks? If you've enjoyed our show, please, won't you take a moment to rate us on iTunes? That helps others find the show, too. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonzacor of Milan, Italy. <laughs>